0: I had a bit of a marathon there because um, we did the first service and then we did Believing and Belonging, so I had to go up and do 30 minutes up the stairs there, so that's why I missed the worship of the second service, so my voice cracks, um, uh, but it's good to be here. It's good to be um, with you. Um, A bit of a change today in that... um, I was actually looking at my notes, and this is the 10th time I've spoke on this subject, following Jesus in all of life. So this is my 10th Sunday morning on this subject. There's been others in between, but this is my 10th talk on it. And and, and all of the 10 talks that I've done up to now are all about us. They're all about what we need to do. How can we get set free? How can we find our right standing in God? It's all about identity and about sonship and daughtership and all of that. It's going to change today, and then Dave's going to pick up the next couple of weeks, and we're going to talk about what it means to take this out, what it means actually to um, take this out into our environments, and so the passage that I want to talk to you about today is this passage here that talks about salt and light. I wrote it up on the board, so it will stay before you because I want you to think about this uh, a lot because it's important that... um, One of the things that I love about our church is that we've built it as a lighthouse. We've built it as a place that people can come to. It's a people. I asked this question, where, or I said that some people ask the question sometimes is it a safe place? Is a manual a safe place? If you're recovering from an addiction, is it a safe place for gay people to come to? Is it a safe place for an older person to come to? We're trying to make it a really safe place for your kids to come to, hence uh, what, what you just seen. So, yes, it is a safe place, but we've got a dangerous message. And I said this to you, and when you, because the, the thing about it is that the, the Bible tells us that if we know to do good and we don't do it, then it's sin. That's what the Bible says really, really clearly. And so we are a safe place with a dangerous message, and so we don't pander to that. And so it's important, and we, we want to be a light, a place where people can come. But sometimes we there, there's an idea that we can lose our saltiness, as it says here: "You are the salt of the earth." But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again, all right? He says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And then he goes on to talk about the light and how you're not supposed to hide it under a a bowl or anything like that. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about salt than about light. Now, I hear people say things like, to me all the time, they say to me, Phil, how how, how do I find my ministry? How do I know what my ministry is? And I often say, well, if you find Jesus, you'll soon find your ministry. If you can get your life right with Jesus, he'll soon tell you what you need to do. Because you see, the word ministry, when it comes to the New Testament, has two Greek meanings. One is where we get our word deacon from, and the other one is a stronger meaning, this dulio, which means to serve as a slave. So if you're if you want to be a minister of the gospel, if you want to find your ministry, then what, you, what, you, what you're doing is you're saying, how can I be a slave to this thing? How can I actually now be a slave to this faith, this faith in Christ that I have? How can I come under it? Because you see, Jesus provided the pattern for Christian ministry. He came not to receive service, but to give. He came to serve. And so if we are real believers, then we are here to serve. And so the heart of, of Christian ministry is evangelism. The, whole, the heart of Christian ministry is that we would be salt. You see, what happens with salt is you expend salt, all right? You expend it, so salt was used as a preservative, but it was also you put it over your dinner, and you don't gather it up again, all right? Unless um, I, I confessed in the first service years ago when I went to the tech we used to go to Kefola's for lunch, and it was back when, you, when you could smoke in the public. Not that I ever did. And, um, and but whenever, actually, when the band smoking, it, we we found out that Kefola's actually did have a back wall. You just could never see it. Um, but we we used to we used to when we were kids at school, we used to screw the lid off the salt cellar and then just set it on, and then wait for the next person to come in. Not terrible words for you. Please, I'm confessing. Now, somebody's are looking at me horrified. But anybody come on own up. Anybody ever do it? I said ah, thanks, Ian. Knew there was somebody weren't gonna leave me here moon. And um and, and so salt is so salt is expended, it's thrown out and so light is come and see, salt is thrown out. And so this idea of throwing ourselves out again is something really powerful. Now, I know I told you this story a, a couple of months ago, um, but you probably forgot, but I'm a, I, I love a good movie, and one of my favorite movies is the movie called A Beautiful Mind. I've told you this story before, but it bears telling again because of what I want to do this morning. And in a, in, the, in a Beautiful Mind, it was premiered in 2001, so you had 18 years to watch it, and I'm about to wreck it if you've never seen it, all right? And in that that movie, um, Russell Crowe acts a, a professor, John Nash. And John Nash is a brilliant professor of mathematics. And he's such a genius that he actually is awarded the Nobel Prize for his brilliance in mathematics. The problem with John Nash is he has this other world going on. He is diagnosed with a thing called paranoid schizophrenia. And as a paranoid schizophrenic, John Nash has this world, this other world that keeps going on all the time, and so he goes through his whole college with a roommate who doesn't actually exist exist to him, but not to anyone else. And this roommate actually has a little daughter who um, John Nash actually becomes the godfather of this little girl. In the movie, very very powerful film, and um, and in this in this whole. In this whole structure, what happens is when he's when he's um, diagnosed with this, they give him medicine, and the medicine cures the schizophrenia, but actually it, it affects him emotionally, it affects him physically. And it affects him in all ways that he actually stops taking the medicine. The problem when he stops taking the medicine, this other world reappears and all these people. He actually believes that he's been drafted in by the government as a spy to debunk sort of systems that are coming against the country. It's a powerful movie. And one of the scenes in the movie is when John Nash, who is now married and has a little baby daughter, and his wife leaves him in charge of the little baby daughter in the bath. And John Nash is in charge of his little daughter, who's in the bath. The problem is, John assigns the duty to look after the baby to the bath to his imaginary friend and uh, his little daughter, his goddaughter. And he goes down the stairs and he leaves the baby in the bath with these two people who are imaginary and real, very real in the schizophrenic world of his. And so, what happens in this is that um, what happens in this is that he he finds a his 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 wife comes up and finds the baby literally minutes from drowning. Just minutes from drowning. And and uh, and the it's a powerful scene. I couldn't show it all because it is a little bit daunting. But in, in this scene, in this scene, it's like uh, he she just realizes enough's enough and she has to get out of the home and she has to lead John for the safety of her own safety and for her baby's safety. And um, watch this little scene, just only about 45 seconds, but watch this little scene. Do you grab it here a moment or two? She never gets old. she can't be real. She never gets old. It's one of the turning points in the movie. It's one of the actual turning points in the movie where his realization is this little girl in the scene that just Um, uh, proceeds that she grabs his hand in the middle of a violent storm with two or three of these imaginary people this wee girl grabs his hand and it's quite disturbing and that's why I didn't show it all Um, but she grabs his hand and it's this moment of realization that she just never grows up she never grows up and I wonder sometimes, because I hear people say to me, people say this to me sometimes, you know, Phil, it's hard to get to know people in church now because it's growing. And, and, and some people even say, you know, I, I, Phil, I'm struggling and I, I, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be part of something smaller. And I get that to a point, but there's a bit of it really annoys me as well. Because if it was your child that was never growing up, you'd be taking it to the doctor if it was never expanding and never growing and never going anywhere, anything that's healthy grows. And so it's important our church grows. And it's important we work hard. I've just come down from Believing and Belonging where I talk to them about family. And it's important that we believe that we're a family and it's important that we work hard like days like yesterday to be a family and to get to know other people and to have conversations. Yes, it's, it's hard, but it's important that we do that. And, and, and it's important that we grow. And it's important that we're salty because you see, if, if we never grow up, if we never get older, This is why the writer to the Hebrews writes in chapter 5. He scolds the people. And we often say that the the book of Hebrews was probably written written by a Hebrew to the Hebrews to warn them to stop acting like Hebrews. Because what they were doing was they were going back to their old thing. They were going back, I would rather stay small. I'd rather be there. And and this idea of always going back. And so the writer to Hebrews, whoever he or she was, comes in with a powerful thing. And he says this. He says, By this time, you ought to be teachers. But he says, someone actually needs to teach you the elementary truths of God's word. He said, you need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives in milk is still an infant and they're not acquainted with, with the teaching about righteousness. And so so the writer to Hebrews is scolding the church for not growing up. He's scolding the church for staying small. He's scolding the church for having this button the hatches in mentality and us four and no more, and that's not on anybody sit in our seats and rock the boat. He's scolding about that. He said, no, that's not the way it should be. We need to grow. And so this idea that we actually need to think differently, we need to start thinking like Um, Jesus thinks, and so this is what he says, sorry, I wanted it all on the screen. Let me just read through it with you in Philippians 2. Paul's writing, and he said, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in his spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete and be like-minded. How would we do that? Having that same love, being one spirit and one mind." do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, listen to it, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to in the interest of others and in your relationship with one another, having the mindset. What is he saying? He said it's time to get salty again. It's time to make sure that we actually have this mind of Christ, that we start to value people over ourselves. We start to put the other first, gentlemen. When was the last time you opened the door for a lady? It's really important we do things like that as men. But ladies, it's so important to value others. And so I say to people all the time: You want to sort your own issues out. Get, a, get a, a serving others ministry. And as you begin to serve others, you begin to realize that it actually deals with the stuff within. One of the things that Laura will back me and this, one of the things about doing counseling courses is, I did a couple of counseling courses and they killed me. Because as it started to teach us how to, how, to, how to deal with other people in the counseling room, it started to deal with all the stuff within myself began to see all these issues that I didn't dream that I had and so in this idea, Mark 1 tells us this that Mark one thirty-five, reminds us that Jesus got up early in the morning and he went up and he spent time with the Father. Now that's a really good idea. And I know loads of people, self-included, needs to do more of that. We need to climb the mountain and we need to spend some time with Jesus. But here's the truth. Here's the truth. I also know lo- loads of people, and they do my head in, sorry to be so blunt, but that need to come down the mountain It would be good if you would come down the mountain now and again and involve yourself with people. And so the balance was this, that Jesus had this intimacy with the Father while he had involvement with people. And that's the key. And that's what the New Testament's all about. It's about going up and spending time with the Father. It's about coming down and doing what he tells you and involving yourself with people. And Jesus had that balance. That's what he done. And so, so uh, this, this idea of, I call it the sparrow down of Philippians 2, where even though he had the right to be God, he says that have the same mind. Uh, uh, it finishes off there. We're saying having the same mind as Christ Jesus What it continues on to say after that is that that Jesus was in the very nature of God, that he didn't think equality with God was something to use for his advantage, the NIV puts it. Rather, he made himself nothing and became a servant to all. That's the mind of Jesus. And so if we want to know the the mind of Jesus, we just have to open John 13 and read the first 10 verses and we'll find Jesus grabbing a towel, not a title. We'll find him grabbing a towel and getting his disciples and washing their feet and encouraging them to do the same. This was the God of Sinai. This was the God of Sinai introducing us to the church, which was to be his body. And of course, the body does what the head tells it. Rodney won't mind me saying, but Rodney fell off a horse many, many years ago, damaged his spine. And the problem with the disconnect is the the body then doesn't do what 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 the brain's telling it to do through the damage. Sometimes we've just, we've allowed something to disconnect the body from the head. And the Bible tells us, and we're believing for healing every week, we're believing for healing, and Rodney is too, and Karen, which is so beautiful, and I love their faith, and I love what they do and what they carry in this church, but there's something about this idea, and so what we have in TV at the minute, we have this thing called reality TV. I, it, it does my head in that big house thing and all, big brother or whatever it is. Honestly, it's just cheap nonsense, and um, and, and what it is, is these cameras in the house and they watch people everything but going to the loo. Honest to goodness. And, um, but, you know, I, I tend to think they get the idea from the New Testament because in the life of Jesus, there was four cameras that were called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And these four cameras give us this viewpoint into the life of Jesus. And this is one of the reasons I love the Gospels. I read the Gospels I'm sure 10, 20 times every year, I just, wherever else I'm reading, I just read through the Gospels because they open me up to the life of Jesus. I see how he responded to the poor. I see what what happened when he went to a wedding. I see what happened when he went to a funeral. I love what what he does when he comes in touch with the poor and the needy. And so what happens is we, we get the idea to see who God is because Jesus said to Philip, Philip said to Jesus one day, show us the Father. And Jesus said, Philip, do you not get it? He that has seen me has seen the Father. So if you watch the life of Jesus, you see exactly what the church should be. So if I were to get you to call out um, some of the things that you see in the life of Jesus, you would shout out words like love. You would shout words like sacrificial. You would shout words like selflessness. You would shout words like humility and compassion. Those are words that are that all identify Jesus in the Gospels. But then if I were to say to you, shout out words that, that, that you see in the church today, you might shout out words like consumerism. You might shout out, I'd not open it up in case you say something really bad. You might shout out unfriendly. You might shout out um, commercialized. I don't know what you would do, or shallow. But, but the problem is we, the church has become opposite to what Jesus is. And we're supposed to have the same mind as Jesus. And so, so could this be the reason why the church is not attracting people the way it is? And so what I'm going to do, I'm going to give you three principles, three really, really simple principles that you could take into your business tomorrow, that you could take into your school tomorrow, that you could take into any work environment. Um, three really simple principles that I see at, the work, at work in the life of Jesus when I read the Gospels, all right? So principle one, here we go. Principle one, Jesus came to where they were. Simple, simple. I love the way the passion, the new passion translation puts this. And so the living expression became a man. And lived amongst us. That living expression of the God he had. God had become man and lived amongst us. He came to where they were. When the veil was torn in two, when Jesus died in Calvary, it wasn't just so we could go into the Holy of Holies, it was actually so he could come out as well. He could come out and live amongst us, live in us, Christ in us the hope of glory, Paul could say. And the thing is that I've noticed is that people move, cultures move, and we see this in our clothes. If you keep your clothes long enough, they'll come into fashion. Some of you are saying, Phil, see, you haven't caught that on yet. But, um, uh, but, but the problem is culture, what, what I find is that culture sometimes moves at 100 miles an hour, and the church moves at 10 miles an hour. I could never figure out why why I grew up in a, in a church very like this. That wanted to, the, the people wanted to live in the best houses. They wanted to drive the latest cars. They wanted to go on the nicest holidays. But when it came to church, they wanted to go back two hundred years. Can't figure that out. And so we need to move. We need to move with the times. This is the, and, and we need to think about where people are. And this is why I love this church. I love the church. I love the staff in this church that, that I think understand how to be culturally relevant in their town and in these times. And so the, the first principle is you need to know where people are because Jesus came to where the people were. Second principle was Jesus engaged with people wherever he went. I love this. The woman of Samaria, he engaged her. Actually, he said to his disciples who were heading off to McDonald's to get lunch they said to him, he, he, this is what Jesus said. He says, guys, I have food that you know nothing about. He called this food, this was, this was his bread and butter. Bringing people to himself was his bread. He called it his food. He says, I have food that you know nothing about. And so this idea of he engaged, and he just took a risk and asked her a question. Can you give me a drink? And, and, and just the story went on. He did it with Zacchaeus. He helped him belong before he ever believed. He made him feel like he took part of something. This this idea. Philip the evangelist in Acts chapter eight walked alongside a a chariot where an African man was. When the gospel hadn't reached Africa at this time, and this African man, this Ethiopian eunuch, riding along in his in his chariot, reading reading Isaiah fifty three, and and Philip just asked a simple question: Do you understand what you're reading? And the guy says, how could I unless somebody explains it to me? And Philip says, I'm your man. It's incredible, isn't it? He just just took these principles. And and, hey, bingo, the gospel's in Africa. (laughs) Imagine just through one conversation. And then the third simple principle is Jesus took people to where they needed to go, even though they didn't know it at the time. Uh, listen to the Samaritan woman's testimony. She said, come see a man who told me everything ever I'd done. Is this not the Christ? This is what Jesus talked about all through the gospels. This is what he was talking about. These three principles, when he talked about the story in Luke chapter 10 of the good Samaritan, this is what he said. This good Samaritan just came to where the guy was Instead of like the others who passed by, he got off his horse or off his donkey, got down, and he engaged and he helped and he poured in the oil and the wine. We used to sing it in Sunday school, and then he lifts them onto his own base and he brings them to where he wants them to be. That is the story of the gospel. But some people say, "But Phil, what if they don't want to hear?" My response to this: Have we earned the right to be heard? Have we engaged? Or are we so tied into our little pet passages and our little spiritual repertoires and our little cliches that by the time we get to the end and the people are over the hill and far away? And so there's this idea about understanding how to tell the story, how to tell your own story. Every single one of you who know Jesus in here have a story. How about condensing that story into about two or two and a half minutes that you could tell it, hey, here's what happened in my life. I was here and now I'm here and this is what happened. Jesus found me. And telling it in a way, we need to get comfortable with leading people to Jesus. These principles work anywhere. They work at the school gate. They work in the schoolyard. They work in the in Tesco's. They work with a shop assistant. They work anywhere. And if we if we we need to start applying these principles because we are called to be the body of Christ. And so we need to ask the question: If Jesus moved into your neighborhood, into my neighborhood, where would he be? Where would he be? Well. This is the truth of it. We are the body of Christ. So wherever he is, we should be. Let's not decapitate him. All right? We are the body of Christ. And so we need to move with his compassion. We need to think just like he thought. We need to see with his eyes. We need to love with his heart. Not Agabus style. We need to act with his hands. We need to go with his feet. We need to speak with his words. You see, you you know that his word out of your lips is as powerful as his word out of his lips. <laughs> That's why he give it to us. So his word out of our mouth is every bit as powerful as his word out of his mouth. And we are the body of Christ. We belong to him. We are part of the head. And so this is so important that we understand this. So my, I just sometimes think the church has become so untouchable we, 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 we're almost afraid of being contaminated and we get safe in our little cocoon and Jesus is calling us to go. He's calling us to get salty again. He's calling us to get uncomfortable. And so we're going to talk about that for a moment or two, all right? I love how Paul puts this. This is a very powerful passage in 1 Corinthians 9. If you are in your Bible, you should take your Bible out and write this passage and, and, and read it and reread it. Here's what Paul said, though I am free and belong to no one, I made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law I became like one under the law. So as to win those under the law. He goes on to say to those not having the law I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law but under the law of Christ. So as to win those not having the law. I know it's a bit of a tongue twister. But you can see what he's saying. To the weak I became weak to win the weak. I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means, whatever it's going to take, he's saying, I might save some. And I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in his blessing. Now, here's what Paul's saying, and here's what he's not saying. All right? He's not saying that he took on their morals. He's not saying he dropped his guard and became immoral to reach the immoral. That's not what he's saying. He's saying he entered their world. He, he, he didn't change just to their way of life to win them. He just entered their world and he engaged. This is what Jesus did. This is why they called him the friend of sinners. He knew how to engage. So in a hospital ward, you can enter someone's world. In a grieving home, you can. Ent- that's not compromise. That's just entering their world, understanding where they are. So whose, whose world could you enter this way? Is there a neighbor that you could knock on their door and just and, 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 and enter their world? A, a, an old person, a, a fellow worker, a shop assistant, a student, a, a neighbor. I don't know. Listen, you need to know that something that grows from a dozen people to over 2 billion people around the world today in just 2,000 years is worth talking about. And I think it has something to say. And it carries clout. And you should never have to apologize for it. And you should stop using the word just. just as an apologetic word, and we all use it when it comes to the gospel. Can I just pray for you? Would you mind if I just had a wee yarn with you for a few minutes? And so we're on the back foot right away. We're always apologizing for our message. You don't need to apologize for this message. This message changes the world. This message can redeem every lost soul from hell. We don't need to... uh, We don't need to apologize for this because here's the truth of it. This is backed by prayer. It's backed by every prayer of the gospel. It is the priority of the gospel. It is Holy Spirit directed. It is um, uh, accompanied by specific planning. It is satanically opposed. You need to get used to that. It focuses on both groups and individuals. It's accompanied by a demonstration of power and it's strategically mobile. It will change the world if we let it. And so here we are at the turn of this 20th century... uh, at the turn of the 20th century, we had about one and a half billion. I have a slide here, now. It's, I know it's quite small, but you can see some of the growth. If you can go to the middle of the bottom, you'll see 1900. In 1900, there were just over a billion people alive on planet Earth. You can see what's happened in the Asian population, in the African population, which is the blue. Um, right up now, that's actually 2016. Now, it's almost eight billion people alive on planet Earth. And you can see the phenomenal growth. And I have this idea, every time I see stuff like this, I just believe that God's populating the earth to populate heaven. And so of that 7.8 billion people, 2 billion of them call themselves Christ followers today. It's incredible, absolutely incredible. And so we're backed by that. We have this incredible thing. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Even if this week you just told one person, one person, one impact one investment can have huge impact in the kingdom. Now, here's I picked this up off the off Facebook a, a few months ago, and I knew I'd use it sometime. So here goes. Listen to this. This this is a guy called Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher back in the early mid 1800s. All right, simple Sunday school teacher. Um, one day while he's teaching class, a guy. 17-year-old orphan walks into his classroom, and um, he's caught by him, but he's teaching his class, and before the class is over, this boy leaves, gets up and leaves. Edward Kimball is so broken about it, he he falls to his knees, and he says, God, I I didn't want that boy to leave. Something caught me about him, and he started to fast and pray that God would, would let him meet this boy again. He goes into a store downtown Chicago. He goes into a shoe shop. A few weeks later, and this boy here, this boy, is the assistant in the shoe shop. And he leads this boy to Jesus, and, and this boy would later say it was the first time anybody had ever told him in a shoe shop, the first time anybody had ever told him that he had a soul. The boy he led to Jesus was known as D.L. Moody. D. L. Moody became known as the Prince of Pre- Preachers. He he is noted to he's the most renowned preacher of all time, right even to present date. All right, he's noted to have preached to over a hundred million people in his lifetime. That was before any. Sort of social media or anything. That's pretty incredible. One of his converts, one of D.L. Moody's converts, was this guy known as F.B. Meyer. F.B. Meyer became one of the greatest theologians that we have ever, ever had. He wrote 75 theological books. All right? He was a giant in this. His crusades would target um, alcoholism and prostitution. And they would tell us that in the story, that after he F.B. Meyer did one of his crusades, when the, when, the, when the stadium would empty, there was literally, there would be hundreds, if not thousands of bottles of liquor all over the floor. People would just get up and leave it, redeemed, set free. Prostitutes, young women would leave his, his crusades totally set free at that time. One of his converts was this guy who was known as Wilbur Chapman. Wilbur Chapman uh, I can't tell you all the hymns, but he became one of our hymn writers, a hymnologist, and a master evangelist um, uh, who wrote many of the old hymns that we would sing to this day. But one of his converts was this guy called Billy Sunday. And Billy Sunday was known as a fairy evangelist. He was a baseball player turned preacher. And in one of his missions, he would lead this guy to Jesus, a guy called Mordecai Ham, And Mordecai Ham was known as an evangelist and, and a revivalist, but got discouraged in his sort of, um, and around my age, and, and got so discouraged that he just felt he couldn't do it anymore. And so he said, I'm going to retire. And he did one last mission. And, he, and his last mission, he, he, his last crusade, on the very last night, on the very last altar call that Mordecai Ham ever did, a young 16-year-old boy walked up the aisle and gave himself, gave his life to Jesus. We know him as Billy Graham. Now let me tell you, that's one person touching one person, touching one person, touching one person that has touched hundreds of millions of souls, hundreds of millions, through one conversation. So don't you think your little chat in the schoolyard is going to be in vain next week? One investment in one life. Huge impact. You never know. You just never know who you're speaking to. Is it scary? Yes, it is. Would it be easier to sit comfortable and not do it? Yes, it would. But you know what? Jesus said this. Jesus says, lo, I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. And here's the thing. I said in the first service, I'll say it again. As long as I pastor here, and I know Dave's heart as well, we, we're, we're not going to let you sit comfortable. I, 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 I would just have to die and go home now rather than sit comfortable and not do this. Because if the salt loses its saltiness, it's of no value. And some of us have just got far too comfortable, self-included, and we need to shake ourselves up. Listen, I finish with this story. Um, uh, have you got that, that, that clock on, Maddie? This is, this, you can Google this. This is called the World Population Clock. This is working right now as we sit here. Now you can see on the left columns today, the population has grown by one hundred and eighteen thousand people while we have sat here this morning. All right, eighty-six people have went into eighty-six thousand people in the world today. Right today, have went into eternity. Pretty daunting, isn't it? And you watch that top clock. That's the balance. That's that's the way the world's growing right now. As we sit here surely we could find one surely with a clock ticking like that we could find one guys would you come we're going to finish with a song i want to tell you a story while the guys set up when we finish up when i was a boy i used to love um jazz not so much now but i did when i was young and I used to love watching it on TV. I used to love watching the old jazz tap dancing thing. You know, I'm not going to try and do it, you know, but you know the way they did that. And Sammy Davis Jr. was one of, the, one of the guys who was brilliant. Sammy Davis Jr. died in 1990, May 1990. And he was a genius. He was a genius jazz singer, tap dancer. And the story goes, one of his prodigies was a guy called Gregory Hines, And Gregory Hines was one of the guys. He died in 2000, but he was one of the guys who Sammy Davis Jr. sort of would have passed his legacy on to. And so they were very, very close. And basically, Gregory Hines would say that Sammy Davis Jr. taught him everything there was to know about tap dancing. Sammy Davis Jr. died of of throat cancer. And the story's told that on his deathbed, literally hours from his death, Hours before he died, Gregory Hines went into the ward. They had lifted Sammy out into the chair, and he was dripped up, and he had these drips in him, and he was in the chair, feeble, very feeble, in his last hours before he would die. And when Gregory came into the room, he looked up at him, and he gave a big smile just to see his prodigy, to see his sort of son in that jazz industry standing before him. And the story goes that he, he, he tried to lever himself up out of the chair and the nurse tried to push him back into the chair. oh, no, you can't do this. And he pushed her out of the road and he, and, he, and he very, very feebly got to his feet and he pulled the two drips out of his arm like this here and he walked towards Gregory Hines. And he did this. He, he holding onto the side of the bed, he tried to do a little tap dance as feeble as he could, as feeble as he could. And then he went like this. He looked at Gregory and he went like this. What he was saying was, I'm, I'm, I'm passing on my legacy to you. Two thousand years ago, Jesus stood on the shores just at his ascension with his disciples, and he looked at his resurrected body that still bore the nail prints, that still bore the scar in the side, and he looked at those men and women, and he went... You're not getting away with it. (laughs) He was passing on a legacy. He said, all authority has been given to me. And I don't know about you, but I can't sit comfortable having the Savior of the world stand before me and go, Can't sit comfortable with the leprosy mission, Joanne when the Saviour of the world is commission. It's beautiful. Every art and part of who we are. David, into the field that you're in in journalism. It's just school teachers. All you school teachers in here. Businessmen, businesswomen. Not just for the church. He's passing on a legacy. We dare not, we dare not, we dare not sit comfortable. We need to get, I'm going to point him aboard, we, we need to get salty again. As Sammy Davis Jr. Give it to Gregory Hines, Jesus give it to us. And one day I'm going to stand before him and so are you and he's going to say, Phil, what did you do with this? What did you do? Let's stand, let's worship together. Let's challenge our hearts this morning. Our time's relatively gone, but uh, let's worship and then I pray, let us hope. We hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. For more information about our church and all that we do, please visit our website at emmanuel-church.co.uk.